it sounds so gritty when you're like, oh, dude, you got up at four o'clock in the morning. I can say really crazy things like, yeah, man, I've seen the sunrise every day for the past 30 years. It's true. And it sounds super gritty or something. And it's not. The grit it required is like 25 seconds a day. Hi, I'm Brilliant, your host for this show. I know that I'm incredibly blessed. As the son of self-made billionaires, I've seen the high price some people pay for success, and I've learned that money really can't buy happiness. But I've also had the good fortune to learn directly from many of the world's leading teachers. I created this podcast and the School for Good Living to share what I've learned and to keep exploring the question, what does it mean to live a good life and how can we do it? Despite my privilege, I lived for decades in a pretty dark place, and I know that living is often a painful, difficult, and messy business. But I also know that it can be wonderful beyond imagination, and that it's a skill at which we can improve. That's why every episode is a conversation with an author who's an expert regarding spirituality, health, relationships, work, rest, and play, or money. I also ask my guests about their creative habits, routines, and mindsets, and what they've done to get their books written, published, and read. If you're ready to be, do, have, and give more, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. If you want to get more done, if you want to enjoy the process of getting more done, if you want to do work that matters, and if you want to learn more about yourself, I think you'll love today's guest. His name is Stephen Kotler. He is an author of 15 books, most of them bestsellers, including The Future is Faster Than You Think, Stealing Fire, The Rise of Superman, Bold and Abundance. His most recent book is The Art of Impossible, a peak performance primer. Stephen's work has been nominated for two Pulitzer Prizes, it's translated into more than 40 languages, and has appeared in over 100 publications, including the New York Times, Wired, Atlantic Monthly, Wall Street Journal, Time, and the Harvard Business Review. Stephen is the executive director of the Flow Research Collective, and he is well regarded as one of the world's leading experts on ultimate human performance. It's a big claim, but he's got the experience and the research to back it up. You can learn more about him and his work at theartofimpossible.com and at stephencotler.com, and that is S-T-E-V-E-N, stephencotler.com. In the last couple weeks, reading this book, The Art of Impossible, in preparation for this interview, I took away a lot of insights and lessons that I have begun to fold into what I'm already doing every day. Despite all the years and money that I've devoted to personal growth and helping others be the best versions of themselves, I still took away so much from Stephen's book, and I think you will too. I hope you enjoy this conversation with my new friend and flow master, Stephen Kotler. Stephen, welcome to the School for Good Living. It's nice to be with you, Brian. Stephen, will you tell me, please, what's life about? No, no, I will not. Um, <laughs> what kind of question is that, sir? You're going to have to, I'm partially joking, I'm partially, be a little more specific and I can probably help you out here. Okay. How about this? In your recent book, The Art of Impossible, a peak performance primer, you mentioned something that Nietzsche talks about an organizing. I think he calls it an organizing idea. He does call it an organizing idea. And, you know, Nietzsche was... Nietzsche was sort of taught playing around at the intersection of curiosity, passion, and purpose, right? He was interested in how do you kind of get the most out of what, you know, psychologists now talk about as intrinsic motivators. For him, it was an organizing idea. You, to me, it's have a mission, stay on mission, don't talk yeah. about your mission. Okay. You know what I mean? Like, in a sense, like, I mean, literally at the Flow Research Collective, one of our rules is, you know, have a mission, keep it to your damn self. Part of that is there's a tremendous amount of new research that says talking about anything before you accomplish it is demotivating. And this is very contrary to, you know, in a sense, what a lot of people do today, right? We're a very mission-driven society right now. And I get on the phone with people all the time where, you know, the first thing they're telling me is I'm so-and-so, I do this in the world, and this is my mission. And I'm, every time somebody does that, I think, one, like, don't tell me your mission. I don't believe you. It's like, go out, do something, execute it, show me what you've done. Then, you know, we'll talk about your mission. But like, please don't tell me you have a mission because I think you're a liar and a con artist at that point. And second of all, from a motivation standpoint, if you really do have a mission, keep it to your damn self. The science is pretty overwhelming that talking about our big goals releases the dopamine that we should save for actually going after those big goals. And if we get the dopamine ahead of time, we're less likely to go after those big goals. So 
it's a non-answer to your question, but there's a reason behind the non-answer. So I hope that's sure. acceptable. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And at the same time, I wonder how that squares with what you've said in this book, purpose acts as a rallying cry, inspiring others and attracting them to your cause. So if you're not talking about it, how are you? So, you know, I have things I do. And then there's, you know, the Flow Research Collective. The Flow Research Collective has a mission, which is to decode the neurobiology of flow and, you know, use it to create the greatest science-based peak performance training in the history of the universe. Yeah. And you know, in that case, because it's an organizing principle for the company, it's a massively transformative purpose. On that level, I think that is very important. And Peter, you manage myself, who wrote a lot about that in bold. And it definitely seems to be, in fact, Salim Ismail, who's a friend of mine, who I also write about a little bit in the book, did a study of the 100 fastest growing companies in the world. And they all had massively transformative purposes. They all had mm. a mission statement because it was an organizing principle for the employees. So I think there it's worthwhile. And I think, by the way, once you're really kind of farther along on your mission, yeah. But especially in the beginning of it, I, you know, I handle with care and I don't like, I'm really, and I'm very, very distrustful. When somebody comes up to me and says, I'm here to end world hunger, I think you're lying. And you actually, the the other thing, this is like the truth of the matter is I'm a guy, my wife and I ran a a nonprofit dog sanctuary, hospice care and special needs care for small dogs. And we did it in the second poorest county in America with the highest incidence of animal cruelty. And we did it on the front lines for 14 years. And if you've ever worked on the front lines of a serious save the world, anything, you know, it's gritty. It's awful. It's like getting punched in the mouth continuously. And it's, you know, you don't brag about it in that way because that's, in a sense, it's treating the thing you're doing with disrespect, in my opinion. And my wife has no tolerance for any of it. She literally is like, look, if you're not on the front lines doing this shit, you're full of shit. I'm a little like, I understand that entrepreneurs need to like set big targets and move in that direction. You know what I mean? I get a little bit more of the psychology and I'm a little more forgiving. But I often think when people lead with their missions like that, people who actually who have missions and are really on mission and doing that sort of stuff, when they hear that, we all are sort of like, yeah, well, real bad boys move in silence. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Like, I'll introduce you to some serious motherfuckers. You want to meet them? And like, you'll never know. Yeah. No. No, I totally get that. And my dad, who, as I see it, worked himself to death. He was a very successful entrepreneur, passed away 12 years ago. People would ask him, you know, Larry, how do you do it? And I love, by the way, what you wrote in about how Peter Diamandis- You know, by the way, I knew your father. Oh, you did? How did you, how did you connect with him? Through, oh God, it was through abundance, through something I wrote in abundance. And it was something that came into the healthcare side, I want to say. Yeah. Anyways, oh, keep that's going. amazing. Yeah. And people would ask him, you know, how do you do it? How do you manage it all? And he would say, it's easy. I don't talk about it. I just do it. <laughs> so it's exactly what you're saying for sure. Well, let me ask you this. Let me go back to this book, The Art of the Impossible. Who did you write this book for and what did you want it to do for them? Yeah. So, you know, in the beginning, it says this is a practical playbook for impractical people, right? And it's really written for any of us with unreasonable expectations for our lives. Mm. And it's also really written for, I do believe, even though I've just, you know, talked about not talking about your mission, I really sort of, I didn't, this isn't in the book, but if you're asking me a personal opinion, I think everybody's got a mission. I think there's everybody's sort of got one thing they're here to do and they can do it better than pretty much anybody in the world. And so I also wrote it for those people, right? Awesome. And that's a lot of people. And the thing that I've been hearing lately that I, I wish I had said this myself because it's better than anything I could have come up with, but I don't even know if I can say this out loud, but a couple of people have said, you know, I'm going to buy this book for any of in my life who could really change the world if they could only get out of their own damn way. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I think my staff stole it and they're going to put it on a tweet. And I was like, I don't know if we could be the ones saying that, but wow. Yeah. That's sort of like, yeah, those are the people I'm writing this book for. Anybody who wants to go big and anybody who is like me, I don't know, like you, I was sort of pissed when I was younger that I didn't have an instruction manual. I was like, God damn it. Why don't like, I want to do some shit here. Why isn't there a manual? How come? Right. And it didn't, you know, I got it and I didn't get it, but that's what I've tried you know, to write. And the the cool things is since it's a biology based kind of protocol, 
And peak performance really is nothing more than getting your biology to kind of work for you rather than against you. It's a limited suite of tools, right? Like most peak performers, when they read this book, their response is, oh yeah, I was doing like four or five of these things. I didn't realize there was a sequence, there was an order, and I didn't know why I was doing it. I was right. That's really sort of common, I think, to a lot of people reading this book. Yeah, that's awesome. And that's one of the things that I really appreciated about this book is how you were able to, well, A, teach me a number of things I didn't know, but also just name things that I knew at some level, but hadn't recognized or acknowledged. And and I think the maybe the frame you put around that is you say in this book, whenever the impossible becomes possible, there's always a formula. And you say, and I love this, impossible is a checklist. Will you talk about, maybe this is the place to start in exploring that idea. Um, I know it's not the full intrinsic stack, but you talk about, I love this massively transformative purpose. And then you talk about high, hard goals and clear goals. And there's something about that for me in all the goal setting and personal growth I've done yeah. that that just has such an amazing utility. Will you talk about both impossible as a checklist and those three sets of things? Yeah, those are great things to lead off on. So one, when impossible is a checklist, the stuff we've been talking about with how do you curiosity, passion, purpose, that's something you know that I talk about as we put it under the passion recipe. It's literally a formula for sort of lining up and utilizing all your intrinsic motivators. And it's sort of an onboarding practice. But once you get through a handful of onboarding practices like that, what you find out is that peak performance, getting all the stuff you need to do to really get your biology working for you, meaning getting you farther, faster, naturally, in a sense, it's six things to do every day, seven things to do every week couple of things to do every day are really fast, like five minute, five minute, five minute things. A couple of them fold into things you're already probably doing. And a couple of them, if you're any kind of peak performer, meaning you're good at anything, and it could be stamp collecting, right? Like mm-hmm. I don't care if it's something you get paid for, a hobby, or you know, even if you're great at breaking up arguments between people because you grew up in a volatile home, mm-hmm. right? Like that's still... Any of those things, there's going to be a bunch of this stuff that you're probably doing naturally anyways, because as we said, biology is the toolkit and peak performers, your body is designed for this. You will naturally move in these directions. You'll come to these things sort of on your own one way or another often. Awesome. So that's the checklist part of it, right? And we could go more into that, but you know, I really do think it's a checklist. The second question you asked was- About MTPs, high heart goals, clear goals. Okay. So- What the science shows, if you're interested in the peak performance suite, motivation is what gets you into the game, right? Once you're in the game and motivation is a little bit extrinsic motivation and a lot of stacking up and aligning your five biggest internal motivators. Once you've got all the fuel in the tank, you need to know where the hell you're going. And this is super big deal at a, we won't go too deep into the science, but simply put, we don't really live in reality, right? We live in a reality that's filtered primarily by two things, our fears and our goals. So the body is a goal-directed system. It needs to know where it's going. And when it knows where it's going, it will get you there much, much easier. It almost works automatically in a weird way. And there's biology underneath that we can talk about it. But what the science shows is that for this kind of steering, three tiers of goal setting are the best. You would want a kind of a mission statement, massively transformed purpose for your life. This is like one to three things that you're sort of here to do, right? And those are big steering points. The way I look at it is I have three mission statements to my life. And then once a day, I try to advance each of those causes a little bit. And then there's a fourth thing on my to-do list that is always like all the shit I have to do to advance those causes, right? I'm talking to you. Am I writing my, you know, writing books is one of the things that I big on my mission statement, but I'm advancing my writing book cause by talking to you about the ideas in the book and, you know, cause I'm excited about them and blah, you, you seem to like them and, you know, let's talk about yeah. them. And then there's just friends and family and hurling myself down mountains at high speeds, right? Like those are, I do six things. And so I do like my mission statement things once a day. Then I do the shit that I got to do to support that. I hang out with friends and family because social support is important. And then I get the most flow in my life by hurling myself down mountains on skis or mountain bikes or, you know, that sort of thing. So that's like my first filter for my life. That's not in the book, but that's how I like to use it. And it's a useful thing to know because we like to think that we're defined by the things we say yes to. 
but we're really much more, we say no way more than we say yes. And we're much more defined by what we say no to. So I like to be very intentional about, oh, these are my yeses and these are my nos. Because otherwise I think things get away from you. The next level is your high, hard goals. Let's say one of my mission statement goals is I want to write books that impact the world. Then my high, hard goals are, I want to get a degree in creative writing. I want to get a job in journalism. I want to write a book on cooking. I want to write a book on healthcare. I want to write, those are high, hard goals. They're usually in the one to five year range. I find naturally that when I set high art goals that are beyond the three-year limit. They get more difficult for me. Three years, and I think everybody is sort of different. We all have built-in time horizons and we can sort of learn to extend it and work with it. I, three years is where I've come out, but I think everybody's going to come out differently. And these are really, your high art goals are all the little things that will support your massively transformative purposes. And then you need clear goals. Clear goals are very specific things. This is a term that comes out of the literature of flow, the state of optimal performance. So flow states have triggers, preconditions that will lead to more flow. One of them is clear goals. Flow follows focus. Like I'll give away the secret. Flow follows focus. It only shows up when all our attention is in the right here, right now. And so when goals are clear, you know where to put your attention now, where to put it next. You know exactly what you're supposed to be focusing on. And the thing is, when you say clear goals, especially to Americans, especially to entrepreneurs, and folks like that, anybody who's sort of aspirational or trying to step up to the plate, we hear goals. We don't hear clear. And emphasis here is on yeah. clarity. You're trying to tell your brain, this is what I'm doing. And a clear goal list is nothing more than a properly organized to-do list for your day, right? Your clear goals are all the shit you're going to do today to advance towards your high, hard goals, right? And when you do this, when all this stuff is pointed in the same direction and it's pointed at your purpose, basically... Now, everything is going in the same direction. And the cool thing, they haven't done this work on massively transformative purposes, so I can't put a number on it, but the Godfathers of Goal Setting Theory, John Locke and Gary Latham, and I know Gary a little bit, he's a wonderful psychologist, and they found that high, hard goals will give you an 11 to 25% boost in motivation simply for having higher goals. That is cuckoo. If an eight-hour workday is your baseline, that's like two free hours of work simply for like having the right context around the stuff you're doing. Are you kidding? That is so much energy for free. It's amazing, right? And clear goals really, and especially if you're dealing with, if you're not used to working from home, if COVID's really taxing you, if life feels really, one of the easiest ways to get control over your life and reduce uncertainty and be able to declare your day a win, which is a really important thing, is a clear goal list. Also, when you check things off your to-do list, when I said impossible is a checklist, what I sort of also mean is impossible is doing all the things on your clear goal list. And the way I, I, I tell people is start your day with your hardest task first, right? The biggest win, and then work backwards, right? In terms of lesser and lesser wins figure out how many things you can do in a day and be excellent at all the things you're doing. That's how many things go on a clinical list and everything goes on the list. So I said earlier, I tried to spend time with friends and family. Social support is really important performance and quality of life and all that other stuff. So on my clear goals list, three times a week, it's, you know, one hour deep conversation with either my wife or a close friend where there's, you know, laughter. Like I want laughter and whatever, like really specific things, but that goes on your list because it's going to take energy and you want to be excellent for that conversation, right? So that's what I mean um, by a clear goals list. And the most important thing to know about finally, and then I will shut up. I think it's the last thing I have to say is check them off as you go along. Because every time you check off a goal, you get a little bit of dopamine. Dopamine is a focusing chemical. It's a performance enhancing chemical. It's a reward chemical. So reward, this is how you build habit loops, right? Those little wins, it's also how you literally build momentum, like sort of cognitive peak performance momentum. One of the easiest ways is you know, being able to declare victory over your day. Also, when you're done with everything on your clear goals list, in peak performance, active recovery is kind of important, right? So yoga, uh, restorative yoga, an Epsom salt bath, the sauna, breath work, any of that stuff that really sort of long walk in nature restores the body. Really important to have an active recovery protocol because you go really hard if you're you're trying to achieve peak performance and passive recovery won't do it. Like you'll start to burn out Mm -hmm. without active recovery, protect against it. But you have to know 
when to recover. So you have to be able to declare victory over your day. Go, okay, I won my day. Check. Like, and the whole goal is not like I did a great job. It's just get it done. One, two, three, right? What your father said. Yeah. Just do the just job. Just do it. Right. That's right. And what, what you're saying that Locke and Latham discovered about the benefits of adding clarity, like having clarity by having goals and the increase in productivity and performance that that provides without even the science to back it. I remember you know, a teacher of mine, Jack Canfield, said, if you're not excited to get out of bed every morning, you either don't have enough goals, big enough goals, or the right goals. <laughs> so it was directionally you know, that same thing, but now you've pointed me to the researchers that validate you know, what that is and why. Yeah, I, you know, Jack, I liked certain ideas in the success principles. There are certain things he does that are actually really bad from a neuroscience perspective. He does a bunch of stuff that is actually counteract act so much of that secret stuff, that aspirational stuff. Mm-hmm. It's actually demotivating from a neuroscience perspective. So he's almost there and he's got some great, 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 amazing goal setting stuff in there. There's just like, I wish he would sort of like read up on a little bit of neuroscience and tune it up. Because I think he'd be much more on target with some of it anyways. Yeah. You know, and then you touched on this, the importance of keeping one's word, the importance of us doing the things we say we're going to do once we put something on our clear goals list. Yes. And this is something you asked earlier about. There's a lot of writers listening to this. So when I teach flow for my writers, which is my big course on writing and flow and creativity that, that I teach, this is key for everybody. I think it's so important for both writers or anybody who's making a living creatively because there's an up and down that comes with creativity, right? Like I always say as a writer, my book is only right once. Every other time I come to it, it's wrong, right? So like a book is like a million little deaths in a row followed by like, oh, I got it right once. And it's only really right for like one read, right? You're reading you're like, okay, it's done. Send it to the editor because if I look at it again, I know it's not right. So as a result, there's a lot of emotional upheaval. And yeah, breathwork and meditation, there's ways to kind of pull back from that, but it gets really crazy. And one of the things that happens with professional writers is a lot of writers can't do the job because they can't handle the stress of deadlines because they can't control the emotions and they start missing deadlines and things like that. And what I always tell people is if you're interested in writing, remember you're competing against me and other people like me. And we don't ever miss deadlines. And by the way, we've got 40 years of, of doing this. So like you can't indulge your emotions in that way if you're really serious about being a writer because you're up against people who do not and are really good. So yeah. but my no, point about keeping I, your word is keep it to your other people for sure, right? Like this, most importantly, you got to keep it to yourself. So if it goes on the clear goals list, that's a promise to yourself to get it done. I don't ever end my day until it's all gone from the, like I keep my word to myself. I say, I'm going to do something. I may sometimes tell other people that I'm going to do something and I don't end up doing it. And I will go back later and I will course correct. I'll say, look, I know I told you I was going to do this. I didn't do it for these reasons, but if I say it to myself, it's done. Yeah. Um, Otherwise, you know, the habit of kind of breaking promises to yourself is the worst habit you can get into from a peak performance perspective. Yeah. Well, and this makes me think that that idea of real artistship, but you know, this idea of integrity, I mean, and as Werner Earhart says, without integrity, nothing works. Right. So probably right about that. Yeah. And I love part of when I told you that I've enjoyed and really appreciate, you know, things in this book, and I'll be very interested to see what really stays with me because just reading it over the last few weeks, it's given me a huge lift. You know, things like the fact that you have a sign above your desk, do the hard thing or eat the ugly frog first. Like that's not a practice that I've lived with and I'm grateful for it. And to hear you talk about the importance of. Oh, okay. So let me tell you something because we've not, since we went into so much detail about the clear goals list, that sign originated. It's very, very useful. But what I started to realize is that I write first thing in the morning and I always have a target, right? It's, and it's, it, it changes based on where I am in the book. Start of the book is like five, 600 words a day. Middle of the book, is seven, 800 words. End of the book, it's a thousand to 1500, whatever. So it moves, but, and I can, so I can various speeds through that, but I discovered that if I could finish my book writing and instead of like, it's an exhausting four hour, you know what I mean? If I could do my next task, without even missing a beat, Mm -hmm. like literally like finish the book, start the next tax right away. 
what I ended up figuring out is like, there was used to be this army slogan from what I left from the nineties. I think it was where we get more done before 9am than most people do all day. And I started to realize that by shrinking the like fuck off periods in between the things I'm doing, mm. I, one, I wasn't wasting the flow from the first session. You know what I mean? I wasn't pulling myself out of that deep focus mm. to go into the, that's where it started. I was like, oh yeah, I got to remind myself to, cause you never want to do that. Right. But the leverage you get from that, oh God, this is going to suck for a couple of minutes. Cause I didn't even take a break. I didn't even like go to check Facebook or, you know, do something dumb to, you know, for me, it's usually watch ski videos. Uh, yeah. I don't ever, I, when I take a break, I'm, I want something that I'm not have an emotional reaction to because uh -huh. that will break focus. And it's too hard to come back to anything that if I'm in work mode, once there's emotions flowing, you know, unless they're useful, I'm derailed. So I'll just stay away from all that stuff. So I'll go to something neutral, like a ski video or something like that. But I discovered that even that five minute break, squishing it out, I got so much more done. Yeah. That was a long answer. No, that's awesome. And, and I realized that every one of us ultimately has to learn ourselves, our preferences, our strengths and you know, weaknesses and things like that. So I think to hear this level of detail, you know, it's certainly useful for me and I suspect for people listening. And it squares with things other teachers have said. Like, I love what Tony Robbins says about never leave the scene of a decision without taking an action to commit you to that decision. Right? So the moment that it's decided, it's boom. Yeah, that's sort of the habit of ferocity. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. There's a so Dr. Ann, this is not in the book, but it's the best thing I know about this that I've heard. I love it. If I would have heard it before, I would have put it in the book. So we do a lot of work with Stanford neuroscientist, Dr. Andrew Huberman, who's a really bright guy. And he said something the other couple of weeks ago. He said, you know, the biggest difference between a peak performer and everybody else is that peak performers know it's always crawl, walk, run. Everybody else comes in and they're like, you know, I don't really crawl and I don't really, can I start at a jog? I want to start at a jog. And they end up spending a tremendous amount of time looking for a shortcut so they don't have to, right? And peak performers, they know yeah. you're going to start, like whenever you start, it's going to suck. It's <laughs> going to feel bad. You're going to be lousy at it. And they just don't waste time dithering. Yeah. So like, it looks like they're way ahead of everything. You're like, how did they get so far so fast? Because you wasted, and the way I explain to people, like all this stuff, if you can save yourself five to 10 minutes of decision, on average in my workday, business day, I probably make five hard decisions, I would say. And if normally I'm going to fuck around, dither five, 10 minutes of decision, if I save that time, it's 25 minutes a day, it's three and a half hours a week, it's three and a half weeks a year that you're getting back, that you're ahead of the competition by not, by just making the decision and leaning in and starting right then and there. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I want to go back for a moment to this thing about emotion, because what you said in this book, I found really interesting and, I, and I'd love to hear you just speak a little more to it, where you say on the path to peak performance, quite often, your emotions don't mean what you think they mean. What do you mean by that? This requires a, a slightly deeper understanding of how flow works and the neurobiology of flow. But I'll give you a simple example. Flow is not a binary. It's not like a light switch. If we want to get into the zone, we get into flow, we move through a four-stage cycle. There's different neurobiological changes, changes in the brain and the body during each stage. Flow itself is our favorite feeling on earth. Like literally it is when you ask people to vote, we will take it over drugs, we'll take it over sex. We take flow over everything. We love it that much. It's that big of a high and boost of performance, but it's the best we feel on the front end of a flow state is a state known as struggle. And this is a loading phase. You're sort of loading, then overloading the brain with information. Flow is what happens when we've sort of learned and automatized processes. And we can take a whole bunch of kind of automatized processes and put them together and get amazing results. It's like you've imagined playing how to you know, jazz, like Flow is what happens. You've mastered all the standards. So now you can play all kinds of jazz on top of the standards, right? Struggle is when you're mastering all those standards. It's miserable. And for reasons that have to do with the limits to working memory and a whole bunch of other stuff, you literally, to get into flow, you have to go through frustration. Frustration is a sign. If you're interested in more flow, more peak performance, you're moving in the right direction. So imagine knowing this when you were a little kid that when you were getting frustrated trying to learn shit, that that was actually a sign you were doing the right thing instead of the wrong thing. 
Like I would have killed for that knowledge, yeah. right? I thought, oh my God, it feels terrible. I must be doing something wrong. No, no, it feels terrible because you're doing something right. There's a lot of other stuff. There's like five or six different fears. Another great one, which is peak performers, like most people steer away from fear. Peak performers go, oh my God, fear gives me focus for free, right? It's stuff that scares me. I want to go right at it because I'm going to pay attention to it without having to burn energy on paying attention to it. It's going to happen automatically. That's fantastic. That's, you know, a bonus. I mean, there's certain things you want to do first before you start playing with fear in that way so you can handle it. But the point is most people see fear as a sign to stop and they feel frustration as a sign that you're doing something wrong. And those are, from a peak performance perspective, exactly backwards. Yeah. See, I think that's such a massive insight because if we can recognize that, whatever, the struggle, the fear, and I love what you say, you quote, I think it's Kristen Ulmer when she talks about, she says, we often don't even recognize the emotion we're feeling as fear. Instead, it gets misinterpreted and redirected, showing up as blame, anger, sadness, or irrational thoughts and behavior. And this idea of when those emotions, those disempowering emotions show up and we throw in the towel, we don't keep our word to ourselves. No wonder we won't be a peak performer, but if we first of all, have awareness and then give a different meaning to that emotion, interpret it differently. No wonder that our performance will, will show up. And I think that's not obvious. <laughs> it's not intuitive. It's, some of this stuff is very, right. It's less than obvious, right? Even the thing that we started the conversation with where I sort of landed on your opening, which was not fair of me. And I apologize, <laughs> but there's peak performance stuff that sort of matters because I want people to be able to be great in the world. Yeah. But it's not obvious that it's a bad idea to talk about your goals out loud, Yeah. right? Who the fuck would have like talking about your goals actually is demotivating or affirmations. What Jack Canfield, who would have thought that looking in the mirror and saying, I'm a millionaire, I'm a millionaire, I'm a millionaire. If you work at Walmart is actually a really bad way to become a millionaire. Like it's very demotivating because your brain has a built-in bullshit detector going, dude, you work at Walmart. Yeah. You're not a millionaire. Right. The aspirational stuff doesn't work, whereas gratitude works because it yeah. works. The, none of that stuff is obvious. And by the way, none of that stuff, most of that stuff was completely unknown until like the neuroscience sort of caught up. We've been doing peak performance psychology since William James, Nietzsche, William James. And then there's the entire self-help movement, Dale Carnegie, you know, everything forward from like Napoleon Hill thinking like all that stuff, too. And a lot of some of that stuff is right because people are intuitively they're sensing out the biology and they're moving in the right direction. But what the neuroscience has taught us over the past 15 years is not only we got a lot of stuff right, but the stuff we got wrong, like we got it really wrong yeah. and we're actually like moving things in the wrong direction for ourselves. But it's, it is it's once you see it, you're like, oh, yeah, I, that makes total sense. Yeah. It's not counterintuitive from a common sense perspective once you understand what it is, but it's counterintuitive from the outside in. A lot of yeah. this stuff, you know, which is why it took me sort of 30 years worth of research to kind of, and with a lot of really smart people helping me out along the way. Yeah. No, I want to explore something that you raised because again, it's, first of all, I think it's a really fascinating and beautiful term, but it, it just resonates with me too. And I think anyone who is a peak performer or who thinks they might be, is this idea of the habit of ferocity. Talk about what is that? And is it something that we either have or don't have, or how do we cultivate it if we don't? Yeah, it's totally cultivatable. The easiest way to explain it is, do you mind if I tell the story about my best friend's track team that I tell in the book? Oh, yeah. Okay, because I like this is the easiest way I know how to explain it. And he was the one who came up with it. I was like, oh my God, you saved my ass. He's my editor, by the way, who I've worked with for 25 years. He's brilliant. His name is Michael Warden. Um, Michael ran track in high school and he had this crazy sort of brilliant mad scientist coach. And this is going way back. Like you're talking about high school in the 80s, the early 80s. So for somebody to be doing this then, it was really ahead of their time. So his idea was every time the track team should encounter a hill, they focus really hard on their form. And the thing is, when most runners are out running, the body is a homostatic organism. It likes to maintain the same energy level. So if you'll get up, you'll start running, but it wants to keep that pace. Mm -hmm. It doesn't like going up and down. The body is not, we don't like sprints, right? Like occasional sprints, that kind of stuff drives the body homeostatically a little crazy. So when most runners encounter a hill, they'll slow down. They'll work harder 
to go up the hill, but they don't want to run any faster. So mm -hmm. it's the same energy, just they're just going uphill, mm -hmm. right? So they're going to run slower. Elite runners train to maintain the same pace. When you focus on your form, what happens is it's not speed. You're not accelerating uphill from the beginning. You're focusing on the things that actually lead to speed. And what ended up happening is in the beginning, it doesn't quite suck as much as if the coach was like, dude, you got to sprint uphill. Whenever you see the hill, you sprint. That was where they were going. But where he started with is just focus on the form, the form, tight arms, long strides, sucked in the beginning. But after a couple of weeks, whenever they saw a hill, they'd focus on form and they'd start accelerating up the hill. And then it just started happening naturally. They'd sight a hill in the distance and they'd focus on form and they'd start accelerating towards it. And this team that should not have been winning track meets started winning meet after meet after meet. That is a ferocious habit. The habit of ferocity is that kind of thinking applied to the whole of your life. Simply put, it's the ability to lean into a challenge before you've realized you've leaned in. And it's the same thing we talked about earlier. Most people, they encounter a challenge, something that's difficult, a problem, and they're going to lose five, 10 minutes wrestling with themselves about, you know, oh, I got to fuck, I got to do that. You know what I mean? There's a whole bunch of gnashing your teeth, storm and stress. And what happens is peak performers, they just stop doing that, just automatically lean in because they start to learn, I'm going to do it anyways. Yeah. I know I'm going to do it anyways. Right. Right. So don't bother with the emotions. The emotions are actually getting in the way of doing the hard thing that you're going to do anyways. And you know, you're going to do it anyways. Yeah. So like shut up and just get in there and it automatizes. And I always tell people the way, you know, you sort of got this is somebody is like, you know, Hey, brilliant. Yeah. What'd you do over the past month? Yeah. Or tell me about your past six months. And when the, like, the shit that tumbles out of your mouth, you're like, Oh my God, that's, that's a big list. Right. Or I'll give you, and I don't mean this in a, in a braggadocio kind of way, but over the past year during COVID, et cetera, et cetera, I've launched one book. I've written two more. I'm now launching a fourth. I've also pretty much started and built an eight-figure business and blah, 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 all long things. And the point is not, I'm not trying to tell you any of these things that bragging what I'm trying to say is 10 years ago, any one of those things in a year, in two years, in three years, might've been a huge win for me. Mm -hmm. Right now, 10 years later, I'm like the habit of frosty automatizing all this stuff. I did more in a year than 10 years ago. I could have done in three or four years. That's what you get over time, right? Peak performance is a checklist, but where that checklist leads is that kind of stuff, right? It's compound yeah. interest. Yeah. It's a little bit today, a little bit tomorrow, a little bit the next day, but it starts to get exponential. And then suddenly you just look up and you're like, you know, um, and I'm sure this is, you've experienced this in your life as you've kind of progressed down your path. Whereas this stuff, you know, you probably did over the past six months, 10 years ago, probably right. Yeah. Like, yeah, absolutely. I mean, just with the, with writing, I was an English major as well. And I, I remember when it was a challenge to write a single page, three uh, paragraph essay, right? And then a 20 page term paper later in my English career was that was a challenge and now it's okay well i could do that in a night you know if i had to so absolutely yeah no i mean it literally so i said use fear as a compass mm -hmm. right and since we're talking about writing one of the reasons i wrote three books in a year is because i'd never done it before and i didn't think i could do it yeah. right i've done two yeah. i tried two once it was the hardest i'd ever worked right it was nuts trying to do two so i was like well three is totally fucking Insane, right? <laughs> you really got like try to write three books at once yep. is really, really, really tricky. But it was, I loved the challenge of it. So I gave it like, yeah, I wouldn't advise it. I don't think I'll ever do it again. You know yeah. what I mean? I don't think there's going to be a four book <laughs> in a year kind of thing, yeah. but who knows? Yeah. I'm ambitious. For sure. You know, now that's awesome. And this thing too about the habit of ferocity this idea of immediately and automatically rising to any challenge. I really like the way that you frame this saying that what sets impossible stalkers apart, as far as you can tell, is the size of the original Three vision, things. the amount of flow in the equation, and the habit of ferocity. It's super true. It's super, I mean, over and over and over again. And you know, at a certain level, the reason is really obvious. We have, we all got the same 24 hours in the day. You know what I mean? And every peak performer whether you got to, for peak performance, you got to sleep seven, eight hours a night. 
So like, like that's just off the table. So you've got 16 hours a day to work with. And if you're interested in being great, I don't care if you want to be the best sort of, you know, dry cleaner in Provo, Utah, or you want to be, you know, Joan of Arc, you're still going to give it everything you got, right? So like the habit of ferocity is how you start automatizing the stuff. Flow is how you start turbo boosting. And the size of the original vision really does seem to matter because I will tell you that the dry cleaner in Provo, Utah, and the guy who wants to cure cancer, they're both working just as hard, right? And yeah, there's some more stuff that goes into trying to cure cancer. There's a bunch to learn, but I don't think it's probably easy to become a dry cleaner and try, you know what I mean? I'll bet there's a shit ton to learn there too. Maybe it's different than cancer curing. I get that, you know what I mean? But you get my point here. Yeah, absolutely. Let me transition to a few questions about writing specifically, if that works for you. Everything works for me. Awesome. So you mentioned already that you wake early. And in the book, you talk about the fact you wake up at 4 a.m. and you start writing. And this thing, when you say, does this demand grit? Occasionally. But mostly, grit takes care of itself because I have curiosity, passion, and purpose, which I thought was really cool. But specifically, the term I thought was interesting, and it might be useful for others, because I realized waking at 4 a.m. might not be everybody's cup of tea, but those things about finding curiosity, passion, and purpose, everyone, I think, can do that. But you talk about this idea of non-time. Yeah, non-time and no one really matters for creativity, I think. And it's, this is really, so 4 a.m., by the way, if your writing is the most important thing to you, just start your writing session when your biorhythms are at their peak, right? We are, I'm an extreme lark. I'm up naturally at 3.30 in the morning. Like that's, you know, some of it was surfer hours when I, you know what I mean? When I was getting up for Dawn Patrol and I wanted to write before Dawn Patrol. So that's some of where that came from. Some of it my, my wife's a night owl. She shouldn't start her day. And she's an author. She doesn't start her day by writing. That would be dumb. She starts writing at four o'clock in the afternoon because that's when she's waking up most. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So the grit thing is so, it sounds so gritty when you're like, oh, dude, you got up at four o'clock in the morning. I can say really crazy things like, yeah, man, I've seen the sunrise every day for the past 30 years. It's true. And it sounds super gritty or something. And it's not. The grit it required is like 25 seconds a day. Right. Like from the time, like my coffee's done. So I sitting down at the desk, I've pulled up whatever it is that I'm writing. And usually I start by editing whatever I wrote the day before. So I'm just reading mm-hmm. the first time I encounter a problem. I'm going to be like, oh God, you know, especially if it's a big one, mm-hmm. that's going to require grit, but like 20 seconds worth, you've just got to lean in and start solving the problem. I'm a writer. Once I'm like, oh, that shouldn't word shouldn't be there. This it should be the word. And, oh, that's not a comma. It's a period. I'm in. The game's on, right? Like I'm lost. And yeah, maybe I'll pop up for air back into consciousness three or four or five times, or even if it's a crappy day and it's 15 times, and each time I need 20 more seconds of grit. I mean, are you kidding? Like two minutes of grit per writing session, but I get the credit for like doing something heroic. But when you have curiosity, passion, and purpose, you know, you love what you do. It's just hard to start. But it's also, by the way, this is another thing I think people get wrong is they think if you've got curiosity, passion, purpose, like you've got this all, it's going to always, it doesn't feel good. Yeah. I mean, like, don't like disavow yourself. I mean, I love to ski. It's my favorite thing in the universe. The first three runs on the hill hurt because my body doesn't, isn't yet to moving up. I'm not warmed up. I'm not at speed. I'm not. Well, it doesn't matter who you are. I'm an expert skier. I've been skiing since I was four years old. I ski with pros. It's still the first three runs suck, yeah, right? Yeah. Same thing with writing. It's going to it's gonna suck no matter what level you're at. So don't expect just because you've got curiosity, passion, and purpose, but like it's only going to suck for a tiny little bit is the point. Yeah, totally. Exactly. Back to that Herbert Benson's four, four stage model of flow and all that. We all encounter resistance, what Pressfield writes about. Yeah, and by the way, even on the micro scale, this is not in the book because the research hasn't been done. It's new research we're doing with the Flow Research Collective on, on state onset, what happens in the first two seconds of flow, roughly. And it looks like, though I don't know if I can say for sure, that even on the micro scale, that struggle mm-hmm. cycle, mm-hmm. even let's say like everything's going well and I'm not in a struggle, to get into flow, you may need to trigger the fight response, like literally the fight response. So you're going to have to get frustrated 
and pissed for a second, just for enough to be like, to lean in that habit of ferocity. That's the other reason the habit of ferocity is so important is because you may be automatizing your ability to like lean into a challenge, which may be absolutely necessary for flow. We can't tell. We read Andrew Huberman's work, his lab discovered that we used to think fight, freeze and flee were the same thing. And they were all housed in the amygdala. And in the past couple of years, we have started to realize that fight is actually a separate thing and it's housed in the thalamus in a different place than the, the other two responses. And so that's led to a whole bunch of, you know, new stuff about this, but it really, so like, especially if you don't want to feel frustration, you may never be able to get into flow because it <laughs> like literally is the gateway drug apparently. Interesting. And then I also, I found it really valuable what you say about, so this is something I think writers who haven't discovered an equivalent questions for their own writing when they go to get feedback. As we know, feedback is another important. Oh, yeah, yeah. Of course you might hear. Yeah. So when you talk about there's three things you like to know about your work, will you talk about what those three things are and why? Why it's those? Yeah. So the context here is feedback's a flow trigger, the immediate feedback. They say it's a flow trigger for writing. I found that like editors these days at publishing houses don't really edit. They're too busy. Yeah. The course of a book, I'm super lucky. I've had editing sessions where they've read it once. And that's just not like, I can't write well. I need like somebody to read my stuff a couple times a week. So I hired an editor who I work with all the time. I need the minimal feedback for flow. So this is exactly the feedback I need to steer best. I asked three things. Is it boring? Is it confusing? Or is it arrogant? And it turns out those things are all code for really common fuck-ups I make. So if my writing is boring, it means I haven't done enough research flat out. Like I'm just not there or I haven't found the right style maybe sometimes, but it's usually I haven't done enough research to know what I'm talking about. If it's confusing, I usually don't know my starts and my endings, like where I'm starting from and where I'm going. Right? We talked about the brain as a goal-directed system. It really works for writing, right? Always, if you know where your chapter starts and you know where it ends, right? It will, filling it in between, you've got a pattern recognition system for the brain, the brain will do that. But if this is the number one cause of writer's block, number one cause of writer's block is people sit down to write in the morning and they may have some idea where to start, but they don't know where they're going. And so they're going to just wander around until they get lucky and go, oh, that's where I was going. And is it arrogant? I have discovered, oh, I, I screwed it up actually for you. When my writing is arrogant, meaning I'm using a lot of big words, mm. right? A lot of fancy terms. I can be very evocative. I, I'm trained as a poet. I can do that kind of stuff with writing. And when I'm doing a lot of it, it's I'm always covering up for the fact that I haven't done the research. <laughs> That's my tell. Yeah. And it, remember, the body's a homeostatic organism. It, it'll lie to you. Yeah. It doesn't want to do the research because that's more work. Right. It wants to like, oh, let's just solve it now. Let's write it now, blah, blah, blah. And so I will cover for the fact that I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about <laughs> yet. I do writing fancy stuff. Yeah. And I teach my staff this. I'm like, look, guys, if you're on the phone with smart people, if somebody's using too many big words, they're probably lying. I've interviewed every genius you could possibly imagine. And the smarter the person, the simpler they can explain what it is that they're doing, right? The people who are really, 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 oh, I'm trying to be very precise in my language, so I'm using all these big words. No, you're not. You're lying. You don't actually know what you're talking about. It's to tell as far as I'm concerned. That's funny. Back to that built-in bullshit detector right there, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Stephen- Well, as it, you know, 10 years as a journalist or 20 years, 30 years as a journalist, you get good at certain things like, are you lying to me? Yeah. <laughs> well, this this has been a pleasure. And I know I've said it a couple of times, but I'm really grateful to you for for this book, for you making time to talk with me today, for the work you're doing in the world. I do believe the world is a better place for it. I know we didn't talk a lot about it in this conversation, we touched on it about the work you're doing with animals. As a thank you to you, I've gone ahead and I've made one loan, one micro loan and one donation. The loan is to a woman entrepreneur in Kenya. She's a 42 year old. She's gonna, this was through kiva.org. She's gonna use this to buy stuff to help her farm and grow more crops that she can share with her community. And the donation I made is to the Best Friends Animal Society here in Utah, it's a no-kill shelter. Yeah, I know those guys. Yep. They do good work. So I've, I've made a $100 loan to them oh, on your behalf. I didn't know you were in Utah. Yeah. So yeah. I'm actually right at the foothill of Little Cottonwood Canyon. Like, Oh, my God. Yeah. By the way, you're, like you and Kristen Almer, speaking of oh, Kristen she, Almer. Oh, I didn't realize she was right uh, here. Yeah, she, yeah she's, I don't know where she is right now, but she's right there. Yeah, I'm, by the way, so I will see you 
at the end of ski season because I end my season with snowboard oh, yeah. every every yeah, year. It's, it's, so it's not even 15 minutes from where I sit right now. So, all right. Well, awesome. By the way, th- so one, I appreciate everything you just said. That was actually very nice. And I, so thank you. And two, I've not been on a podcast where anybody's done that. That is pretty righteous and I appreciate it. Well, thank you. Thank you for giving a reason to do that. I love what I read on your site about just trying to do good in the world by putting words together in a straight line or something, something like that. Yeah. You know, uh, people ask me what my job is and depending on the mood I'm in, my job is to put words together in a straight line or the true job. I mean, there's a lot of writers listening. I always tell people like, my job is to turn pain into words and words into money. Wow. That's what I do. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like you can, I mean, pain meaning any powerful emotion really. Yeah. It's not even just pain. Sometimes it's joy and whatever. But when I'm trying to be gritty, I'll be like, I'm turning pain into words and words into money. Ah. Yeah, right on. Well, cool. Well, I hope we do this again. I hope we connect in person sometime. So if next time you're here, please let me know. My pleasure. Get out into the mountains. Yes, for Have sure. Have a great Friday. All right, you too. I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or who live in conflict zones, there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at brianmiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com.